Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak with Brian, who cultivates the tolerance of high degrees of uncertainty. Enjoy. Hey, Brian, welcome to the Relating to Self podcast. Thank you, Joachim. And this is kind of a first because we are in your living room recording this podcast in London. And this is the first time that I actually come to someone's home to record this podcast. And I'm excited. That's amazing. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so my first question would be something like, how do you see yourself or how you would you like to introduce yourself to the Relating to Self audience? Yeah, so my name is Brian Cam. I live in London. I think of myself as an independent researcher and writer, occasional podcaster. I'm working on the history of ideas as a broad topic. And I have had many, I've worn many hats over the course of my life, I suppose. I can go into more of that history if you're interested. But I can also say that I suppose if I have an identity, it is as a writer. And that is because I write every day. Mm. If I were to stop writing, I think I would stop considering myself a writer, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's not about profession as it is as much as it is about action. Cool. Thank you. Um, that brings up a few questions already. But I'm going to start with my usual first question, which is when you hear the term relating to self, mm. What does that mean to you? What comes up in your mind? Mm -hmm. I think about how I view myself, I suppose, maybe in a bit of an external way. I, when I think of my own experience of self, that is something that has changed a lot over the course of the past 10 years. And some meditation experiences and uh, quite assiduous <laughs> Buddhist practices have caused me to question this sort of centrality of any stable self. I would say that's been over the past five or six years. So now when I think of self, I think about it in what the Buddhists would call mundane terms, which is, you know, I am a person, I am here, you're a person, you're there, and we both understand what that means. So if you ask me a question about who I am as a self, I answer it from that level, meaning the mundane level, as opposed to strongly attaching an identity, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, that does make sense. I think it's quite related to how... I see myself mm. um, with a certain flexibility of not holding on too tightly to the ideas that I have about myself as an identity, but more like as someone who is living here right now. Mm, right? Mm, mm. 
Um, I'm, I'm curious because you said that your experience of self changed a lot in the past 10 years. Would that statement be the same as that your relationship with yourself has changed a lot over the past 10 years? It's a good question. I think yes. I think for much of my life, I identified with a certain voice in my head, I suppose, and a certain narrative quality that seemed to have stability over much of my life. And what changed was my understanding of who I was in relationship to that voice. Mm. So this, uh, this perspective of like you perceiving that voice, I think uh, that's what people would refer to as like the um, perceiver or, or like the observer, the observer. Yeah. Mm. Um, is that then the core of the you that relates to the other parts of yourself or, or the, the narratives or the, the voices? The way I think about that is that when I have this feeling of the observer, a kind of neutral, open stance towards whatever other self, you know, what I might previously have called myself, let's say an inner voice, and even other selves, because I do think of a kind of multiplicity of selves, I get this odd effect, which is that it's almost like I can, there's the observer and there's the observed, a subject-object relationship with what I used to think was the self. Mm -hmm. But because I can perceive the relationship between the observer and the observed, it seems like I am not either. So I don't strongly identify as I am the observer. It's almost like there's something, <laughs> I suppose there's consciousness of the emergent qualities of, of observation and self, maybe. <laughs> Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I love that you said that because I've, I've been thinking thoughts along that line as well as like because some traditions would then say like yeah you you are not your thoughts you are the observer mm. and i have the same thing like wait but i am aware of this object subject relationship within myself so that makes me not the observer yes I guess. yes but then what does that make me and i've come to the point now where i think that it doesn't matter mm, mm, like mm. i don't i think that's a metaphysical question that i don't want to go into yes what is my true nature or something like that mm, mm. i'm more interested in my perceptions, what is mm. actually happening in mm. me, like what's what's real, I like to call it. And then from that place, I can either be more into the observer position, I can be into one of the voices, into one of the narratives. Yes. I can choose the narratives that I engage with and mm. so on. Mm. So, um, yeah, tell me about how that has changed, though, for you, like both in terms of like what was different and what has led to the change. Right. So I had a quite intense set of meditation experiences that started, I suppose it was the end of 2017 going into 2018, where I was doing, I, I had just been introduced to meditation through Headspace, the app. And I was doing those practices and I started to get quite intense uh, concentration 
experiences. So the, the jhanas, basically, which was concentration states that I would enter and didn't always know how to get out of. Mm-hmm. And just just for, yeah. for the record, I don't think we've ever mentioned the jhanas before okay. on this podcast. So would yes. you mind just explaining for us what that is? Yeah. So the jhanas are concentration states within Buddhist meditation. I was introduced via kind of Theravada Buddhist set of practices, which is um, it's the usual kind of breath concentration on the breath. I was also doing visualizations, which is another way that you can can reach these concentration states within Buddhism, Buddhist meditation. There's sort of two paths which are mostly overlapping. One is about building up concentration on an object that's potentially I wouldn't say imaginary, but it can be anything, right? It could be the breath. It could be a perception. It could be a visualization that you're generating. And the other is insight meditation, which takes that concentrated mind and turns it on the phenomena itself. And so that's called insight or or vipassana meditation. And before I knew any of this, as in before, while I was just opening the Headspace app and following the directions, I ended up in these what are called the the jhanas and the jhanas um depending on who you ask there's either four or eight of them and they are deepening states of concentration i could describe them as they can be joyful blissful tranquil serene equanimous they get they get deeper and deeper and as you go deeper they lose qualities so the first ones are very blissful And then the bliss drops away and you've got something like more like joy and then the joy drops away and it's more tranquility. And then even that drops away and it becomes this kind of non-judgmental space. But they are in a sense artificial. They're about a kind of, it's almost like a self-reinforcing loop that where, where you're you become concentrated on the concentration. And so it kind of gets this into this self-reinforcing pattern. And um, yeah, they, they feel good, but they can also be disturbing if you're not ready for them actually. And I do, I have read of, of a few other people who encountered them without intending to. It's sometimes thought that they're, they're there's a lot of debate over sort of, the depth of them, how long it takes, because the ones that are written about in the traditional literature, they're kind of referred to as taking months to achieve or Mm -hmm. things like that. And there are some writers like Lee Brasington who kind of distinguish between these two levels of jhana. I would say I was not in the deep (laughs) levels of jhana, but they were similar enough. When I read about them for the first time, I was like, oh, yes, this is this is what's happening to me, <laughs> which is a strange experience. Yeah. Great. And so you got access to those states of mind through yes. just headspace. Yes. And that changed something in your relationship with yourself. Actually, no. So oh. that experience led me to ask a lot of questions to other people. I was just asking anyone I knew. I probably sounded like a crazy person. I was like, you know, when you're meditating, do you ever get stuck where you can't stop meditating and people are like no I have like the opposite where I, I, st- I want to stop meditating and I was getting kind of locked in where I couldn't move my body and things like that so that it was a it was a an odd experience but I just sort of put it out there to all my friends and then through that got introduced to some other texts specifically Daniel Ingram's uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha 
And that led me to the understanding of the insight practices. And so I started taking that concentrated mind and paying attention to experience itself. And that over a period of some months was what really dramatically changed my relationship with myself or myself as I then understood it. Mm. And could you describe that change or how that change felt? Yes. So as I said, I think before this period, I did have a level of identification with my thoughts. And so, and potentially with an inner voice, even an inner critic, a kind of narrative self that was kind of seemed omnipresent. It would say different things at different times. And through, it was specifically through noting practices that I started to, and a noting practice is just as things arise, you get, you can either label them or eventually just note them. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be linguistic. It often is linguistic at the start. So basically I would say feeling, feeling, thinking, thinking, you know, and kind of try and label each of these. As you get faster, you just kind of register it in some kind of mental tick or something like that. And this practice is supposed to lead to insight. And so insight means, and you can stop me if I'm going too far into Buddhism, but the it's, it's insight into the three characteristics of all phenomena, so all experience. And those are emptiness or not self, uh, impermanence, which means that it doesn't last, and suffering or, or unsatisfactoriness, which is that although it may have the illusion of satisfying, it doesn't, right? And so I was doing very intense meditations in this way, and eventually it led to a kind of collapse that allowed me to let go of identification from what I had thought was myself. It was very scary at the time. And um, I, it felt like a kind of death. I did this on a meditation retreat. It was quite scary, and it had profound effects on my perception, I would say. So at the time that it happened, this was, uh, I think, 2018, I was letting go of a kind of understanding of myself. It was very, very scary at the time. And when it kind of snapped and it did feel like something kind of broke in my brain, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. It was like I got an unfiltered view of reality. It was very much like childhood. And this state lasted um, maybe a day or something like that. Um, and during that time, I wasn't quite sure whether I'd be able to speak again. I was on a silent retreat. I wasn't sure if I could do things like addition. Like I wasn't sure whether my conceptual brain would return to normal. And it did, of course, <laughs> eventually, but it did take a while as well. And after that, since that time, the voice itself has attenuated substantially. So it's not that I never have an internal monologue or things don't come up, but the identification with that voice has gone down a lot. And also, I don't, I don't think of it as being me anymore. Mm, yeah, wow. Thank you so much for sharing, Brian. I mean, this is fascinating because I think what you're describing 
is a process that has happened for quite a few people on the podcast mm. over over longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. I've never encountered someone who went through that as an almost like a catastrophe of sorts of like a you know a one time sinking into something. Yes. Um, and I can imagine how scary that that must be. At the same time, I also I can't relate to it because mm. I having not experienced anything like this. Mm-hmm. So uh, wow, and I'm I'm wondering if you could describe like maybe the ways in which how you were and how you then became differed from each other in practical terms. Like how mm. did you show up to the world mm-hmm. after that? It's a great question, and I don't know how different I appeared or anything like that. For a while, I did feel like I had to fake it in in the sense of I was still going to the same job and things like that, but everything was different. My whole perception was different. And at the same time, something remained. So, you know, even though at the start I thought, well, that I've, I've let go of this old identity to some degree, but at the same time, you know, most, most things remain the same. But I would say that as a general rule, as an example, like, like to give a concrete example, I think, let's say I experienced anxiety before. That would seem like a thing that was very real, that was affecting myself, like that I would feel a sense of threat and an immediate need to respond without any kind of distance from it. And after this, I'm not saying that that would never happen, but I would become much more sort of aware to some degree of that as like a physiological response, like, okay, my body is doing this and I can, I get a bit more choice in terms of, is this important or is it not? Now that makes it sound like I'm much more chill than I probably seem. I I don't think that this is like, I went from like being in a pretty healthy state to like a really amazing enlightened state. It was more like I went from deeply messed up (laughs) to slightly less messed up if that makes sense (laughs) yeah i hear you yeah um you said something that seems interesting to me this idea of um faking it so you came back you were still in the same job so you had this perception of needing to fake to your environment that you were still the same person Mm. i think a part of me believes that that is kind of always what identity is or yes. how we show up to the world mm. is always just a role that we play, mm, right? Mm, and so mm. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on faking it versus playing the role or basically improvising yourself, like it's kind of like an improv theater in the world, right? Yes. It's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. So... I do often feel that sense of faking it these days. And I don't know whether, you know, but I also remember that as a teenager, you know what I mean? Just coming into an unfamiliar situation or a new group of people or things like that. I think I have a long history of faking it. (laughs) And so, um, and I've moved social circles frequently throughout my adult life as well. And so, perhaps I had a lighter understanding of who I was, at least at the level of external facts or, you know, there were many, I I always wanted to have many points of entry, if that makes sense. As in, 
you know, I studied this, but I'm interested in this, you know, I also do this, you know, like I, I, many, many different aspects because I always had really broad interests, I think. And so the ability to present those without any kind of, and figure out what people were looking for, which, which makes it sound like I'm doing some kind of extremely Machiavellian acting. I think it was more like, I don't think I had like a strong conception of who I was and maybe still don't, but I did have more attachment to a kind of that, just the inner narrative, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I recognize that. And I think in order to be Machiavellian, Mm. that would need to have a desire to gain something from interactions or, maybe even hurt people in some way. Mm. Um, and I think, well, for most people, that's not the case. Mm. But I I do recognize that. And I believe in many ways um, identity, or let's say my identity, is performative mm. to mm. a large degree. Yes. And as I become more aware of all these beautiful paradoxes inside of myself and the, the layeredness of mm. my being... I get more and more comfortable both with not holding on strongly to my narratives Mm, mm, mm. and also choosing to show up in a certain way Yes, that may be different from from a way that I showed up in another space or another context with other people. Yeah, and one way to look at it is performative as if you've got a kind of script that you're giving or something like that. Another way would be responsive or you mentioned improv so improvisation in terms of how can we collaborate to communicate or something like that you know how can I bring you in and you know meet you rather than you know necessarily presenting the quick one line I am this that you have to then deal with, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, yes. That that reminds me of part of a conversation I had with Chris, and I don't remember it was, if it was a conversation on this podcast or after or before the podcast or in another conversation, mm. but I think he referred to a philosopher whose name I, of course, have forgotten, who said something like, the only way to truly be authentic is to be fully aware that what we're doing is improv theater all the time <laughs> and to, to fully go into that insight and... Mm play along with the improv theater Mm. because other than that the authentic self is is an illusion is Mm. is a story is Mm. a construct Mm. and the more you hold on to that the less you can actually be in that mode where you truly communicate where you truly are present with people where you draw them in Mm. Mm. right so Mm. i'm really interested in that aliveness that comes from being in that kind of playful state Mm. of like reinventing who you are Mm, in mm. relationship to what's happening outside of you. Yes. Yes. I love that. And I don't know whether it sounds a bit existentialist in in a way, this kind of this, you know, the summary of existence precedes essence, right? Mm. Which is that you're kind of, we're always thrust into this situation and we, you know, you and I are sitting here. We don't, you know, we may have chose the, previous actions that led to this point but we're still thrust into it and we still have this you know radical freedom to go in the existentialist route to 
reinvent ourselves in whatever way we want. And that doesn't need to be, that's, it's relational as much as it is, um, driven by a sense of a strong, coherent self. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm curious about another thing because obviously it seems like Buddhism as a, as a practice and as a philosophy has influenced you in some ways. Yes. I don't know much about Buddhism, mm. but I think also compassion is an important and essential concept in Buddhism. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is something that I've noticed um, throughout my evolution, let's say in the past years, that the concept of compassion, especially the compassion with myself and mm, mm. with the voices in my head, with my parts, the ways I fail in the world, all that kind of stuff has grown consistently. Yes. So I'm curious if the experience you described of having these insights due to these meditations have also changed something meaningful about the way you experience compassion for yourself and for others. It's a great question. I kind of think I did it a bit backwards. So within the Buddhist sort of framework, sila, the, which is morality, is supposed to come first before you start the insight practices. And I had kind of read and thought, no, I don't need to do that. <laughs> and um, I think there are dangers to, to ignoring that aspect. I think I'm much more focused on the compassion element now as a result of the fact that g gaining <laughs> insight without compassion is, I think it is a dangerous thing to do, actually. Mm. You can insight to some, I, I wouldn't say it allows you to do just do whatever you want with experience, but it, it does allow you to restructure your experience kind of freely. And so if you haven't got that grounding in morality, in compassion, in self-compassion and in a commitment to improvement, the effects of insight are unpredictable, I would say. So it's a, there. I've come at the time I was self-consciously saying I'm going to do insight before I do morality. And I have now come to think that that was an error. That's so interesting. I, I don't think about morality much, mm. or at least that's what I tell myself. I'm not sure that's true. Mm -hmm. But I find it hard to reconcile or to put together morality and compassion right. specifically could mm. you could you maybe speak into how those are related in let's say the buddhist tradition or in your understanding yeah so within buddhism i think there's sort of three aspects to sila it's right livelihood right concentration and i'm going to forget the other one is it just right insight so but without kind of going into that like my understanding of i think what i mean when i say morality is just a way of relating to others. So the moral for me is not an appeal to, let's say a utilitarian or deontological kind of ethics. Like it's not necessarily that. I, I think I mean moral in a very broad sense of an action is moral if it has consequences for, for anyone else. And most, most things that we do have some kind of effect, even if it's, you know, me meditating alone in the morning, it will change my way of relating to you later in the day. And so that is an aspect of morality right. for me, it just, just in this, in right. the way that I'm using the term. Yeah, I see what you mean. I think when you mention morality, I think more in terms of like, you know, what's right and wrong yes. or something like that. And mm. yeah. 
Great. And then when you look at yourself with compassion mm. now, um, which I'm not always great at, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're it's a practice, right? Mm. It's a mm. practice. I, I think the more the more you do it, the better at it you get. Mm. Um, for me, it has become one of my core practices, and I notice it. I'm going to give a very concrete, stupid example because it exemplifies what it means for me. It's mm. like, say, for example, I hit my toe yes. uh, on a, on a chair or something. Mm. The former me would have been angry, angry uh, at yourself, like, ah, oh, why mm. did you do that? That hurts, like, stupid. Mm. You know, I would like admonish myself for that. And I think the new me, or the the, the me that I'm more in touch with now, mm. is just like almost smiling at yes. it, like, oh, look, I, like, my toe hurts now. Oh. Yes. And for me, that's compassion. And so I'm curious what that experience is like for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that, because when I was doing a lot of insight training, just a lot of meditation in general, I noticed the same thing, which is that when I would stub my toe, I would just be like, uh, that's funny. <laughs> that's happened. Like, it's an unreactive, and maybe, like you say, more compassionate way. I mean, yeah. It's interesting to think of that as a general test. It's like, uh, just say, what happens when you stub your toe <laughs> as a question of like spiritual <laughs> progress or something like that, you know? But I think I, that's actually what I mean when I speak about spirituality. Mm, like that's the mm. only thing, and this may be a bit utilitarian as in like, you know, what are the consequences for the world? But yes. when I see people, I will judge them on how kind they are to others, which mm. for me is almost always um, a manifestation of how kind they are to themselves. Right. And so it doesn't matter for me how much you have meditated or how many divine books you've read or yes, anything like absolutely. that. Yeah. If your spiritual practice comes to the point that you're just rude to others around you for small things, then yes, I don't think you've made much progress. Yes, I think that's a great way of putting it. And it's funny because, you know, like I was saying before, I've gone from this kind of quite messed up to slightly less messed up through through a lot of work, I think. And um, I have friends who, you know, say, like, why do you meditate? And I talk about suffering and, you know, all this Buddhist stuff. And they're like, yeah, I don't have that. And I'm like, yeah, you don't need to meditate. <laughs> like, I can tell from the way you treat yourself and you treat others, you don't need what I'm doing, basically, you know. Um, but I need it. I, I seem to anyway. And I'm curious about you, like, has that been a, what, first, what is your, you said, said self-compassion is a sort of practice for you. How, how do you practice it? That's a really good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I think as compassion grows in me mm. through my practices, such as meditation and some other things, I find it easier to apply it to myself and to others. Yes. And I guess the only thing that I can say, and this is a very recent framing of things in my life, but... I notice myself being more compassionate with mm, things. Mm. It's not like I have the intention or the will, like I am going to be more compassionate. It's right. more like that's what I notice is happening mm. and I like it. And I attribute it to the practices. Yes. Um, and do the practices, do you do any sort of loving kindness meditation or things like that? Yeah, I, I have done that. I think um, these days my meditation is more like what I, I call it sitting with what is. Mm, mm. So I just sit and I allow my my mind to go to places. And I think it's a kind of noting, you could say. Mm, sometimes mm. I do noting. Sometimes even I don't. Mm, sometimes mm. I think it's interesting to just 
perceive what comes up, yes. what kind of stories unfold. Mm. And I think sometimes it's it's very meaningful to stop the stories short immediately. Mm. But at other times, I do enjoy like, wait, let's see Watching where it goes. Mm. Because I have learned a lot about myself from just kind of like following the stories without interfering, if that right. makes sense, mm. like if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so my meditation kind of like goes in and out of these kind of states. And I'm... The one thing that I am happy about with my meditation practice mm. is that I'm not attached to any of it. Right. Like yeah. I, I'm, I'm not thinking. Oh, I need to make something happen. Yes. It's like no. The important part is that I show up. Mm -hmm. Is that I step into the meditation practice, and then whatever unfolds is kind of okay. Yeah, that's great. I tend to improvise a lot too, and either, you know, that's through that's because I'm so self-compassionate or maybe I'm just, just don't have much of an attention span, but I, I tend to do, I tend to mix up meditation practices and not be too rigid about, Oh, I'm only doing the breath for 30 minutes or whatever, you know? Yeah. I that's something I find in general has been very helpful to me. Any kind of rigid practice mm. kind of sets me up for failure mm -hmm. and bringing compassion to my practice mm -hmm. is like, you know, even if I miss a day, yes, I won't be angry at myself. Right. Yeah. And that feels amazing. Mm. And that makes it so much easier to just show up. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and I noticed that also in my approach to others, I feel the, the, the part of me that judges myself and others, because mm. that's kind of like the same part, mm, mm, mm. Um, is a lot less active when I am in that state of mind. Yes. And I can just see the... I can see the struggle in the other person. I can see the suffering. I can see the mechanisms without needing to then step in and say like, hey, this is wrong, or mm. you shouldn't do this, or mm. you should meditate, or anything like that. I'm just like, this is what is. Yes. And more and more, my primary practice is to be present with what's real. Mm. Like, what is real right now? And not trying to interfere, not trying to change what is, right. but just acceptance. Acceptance. Like, this is what is, mm. and I accept this. I surrender to this state. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think acceptance is so important. I don't think it's one that I've <laughs> always got a lot of, especially in the mornings. Uh, but it's one that I aspire to. And I and I suppose it does relate to that existentialist position, which is that you always have the choice in any given moment of whether you will accept it or whether you will, on some level, reject it or not take it in, even though you know, you can't deny that it's happening, right? Yeah, I, d I don't know if I if I resonate with that anymore. It's mm. like, it's really strange. This has been happening in my mind quite recently. It's something like, you know, I always have the choice. Mm. I'm not sure that's true. Mm. Like more and more, I'm less certain of free will. Right. In the sense that, you know, it's more like, for me, it's more and more like, oh, I notice that I have more compassion. I notice okay. that I'm less judgmental. <laughs> it's not like, I feel something right. and I'm going to choose to not be judgmental to this person right, right. now. That's not really what, what feels accurate to me. So for you, ac acceptance is something that arises. It's not that you accept, yes. you make the decision to accept. Yes. Mm. And I think more and more uh, in my current line of thought, I think arising is the right word for most things. Mm. Emotions mm. arise. Yes. Thoughts arise. Mm. Behaviors seem to also arise. Mm. And from the, the stuff I've read, about like, you know, how, how the brain gives signals to the muscles to do things. It mm. seems that it's not quite clear what the causality is exactly. Like mm. it may very well be that we act first right. and then feel like we choose to act. Yes. So uh, 
I'm aware of that and I'm kind of like letting that unfold and mm. I'm, I'm just like, hey, I'm here to perceive this. Yes. And obviously that brings up a whole can of worms mm. of, you know, responsibility and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I have no answers to all of that. Yes. But I think it's an interesting practice for myself to see myself as doing things, acting in the world and mm. then noticing what I'm doing. Yes. And then maybe deciding from a place of detachment of right. like, do I like this? Do mm. I want to act in this world in mm. this way? Mm. Is this the person I want to become? Mm. And if not, what can I do to, to potentially steer myself in another direction? Yes. And do you consider those things that you might do as practices? It's sort of actions you would take to become a different kind of self or? Uh, yeah, I guess there's always two aspects to that mm. for me. It's like one is practices, building habits basically. Mm. Right. And the other would be context. Right. Um, I know that if I change my context, yes, I will behave differently. Mm, absolutely, and I have used that in, in at any number of points in the, in the past where I'm mm. like, yes, I'm going to change my com context to feel different, yes, or to act different. I've heard, I'm curious if, if if you have something similar. Yeah, I mean, I've heard things as simple as walking through a door is enough of a context change to break certain loops, and so I've heard advice. You know, it's not just go for a walk, although I'm sure that would help in its own way, but literally just walk out of the room that you're in if, if you're stuck in a thought pattern. That's one that I, I've thought about and occasionally practiced, and it does seem to do something, actually, yeah. just going... Well, for me, there's a couple of things that seem to work. Is like, one, changing the breath. Yes. Two, changing your posture, mm. or like just moving. Yes. And then three, something like what I would call changing perspective, mm. which is if you're in a room, your perspective is very limited because you have walls. Mm. And then suddenly if you look outside or you yes. go outside, your perspective shifts and you, you see a mountain range or a forest or whatever it is that you see. Mm -hmm. And that seems to change things inside of myself as well. Absolutely, yeah. We're kind of stuck in this focused macular vision a lot of times, often looking at a screen. Yeah. And now, and even just the use of peripheral vision. Exactly can change that can't it yeah so now i'm curious if if you have any practices mm. that help you navigate your relationship with yourself and by extension your relationship with the world that you consistently engage with it's a great question i would like to say that although i have gotten a huge amount from this buddhist framing and it is one that i return to and i find it really valuable it's one that i resonated with immediately when i first started learning about it and and still think in those terms often, but it's also a framing that I try to hold lightly. So I've also done other types of therapy, not a huge amount, but some I've been reading about internal family systems, uh, mainly through Jay Early, who is, um, an early practitioner of IFS. I think IFS is sort of Richard Schwartz is the sort of progenitor of it, I think. And so that framing of having different parts uh, and this idea of protectors and sort of exiles, which I'm not sure if you've spoken about those on the on the podcast. Yeah, it, IFS has come up any number of times. Yes. There's a few people who are really into that. Uh, I don't personally yeah well i mean when i speak to people people often reflect that back at me that you know oh this is very aligned very, with yeah. ifs mm -hmm. you say things in that way i'm yes. like well i don't know maybe 
but I'm aware that it exists. It's yeah. funny that you say that because I was advised also to try IFS because people heard in the way that I speak about my experience that it sounded to them similar to internal family systems. In particular, I have, <laughs> it's going to sound odd, I have a voice that I think of as the muse that comes mm. through me in writing. And I'd be very curious if you have a similar experience in, in music or in other, other creative pursuits because that framing of, well, I think this, but the muse <laughs> disagrees, <laughs> that was what led people to <laughs> suggest that I should try IFS if I already thought about things in those terms. I don't know. Yeah, sure. That, that makes a lot of sense to me that there is this other part of you who has its own will or its own needs in some way. Mm. And as to your question, I've never consciously had this relationship with a muse, right. um, even while still being a composer. And I've often wondered about that. I've, I've felt guilty about it almost. It's mm. like, oh, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not good enough of a creator to have a muse or mm. something like that. But I think it's just um, a different way of framing things and yes. of naming things. And my creative process was certainly, I would say, quite messy. Mm -hmm. As in, I don't always know yes. why or how it works or doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I was also very young at the time that I was pursuing a career in composition. So I wasn't very aware of what was happening. I'm not going to pretend I was. Did you have a feeling of inspiration? It's a great question. Um, I think what I labeled inspiration was always some kind of a process of taking in things mm. and then coming up with a mashup. Like mm. my brain would just smash things together and then I would have ideas. Mm. But I would more or less always be able to point at where it came from. Okay. Right? So there was never this idea of like a a clean, pure, divine type of inspiration that mm. I'm only getting. It was always like very clear that it was my brain just coming up with novel ways of organizing information that I already perceive from somewhere else. Mm. Combinatorial yeah. play or something. Kind of, yeah. And then obviously there is some, there is some adding to that. Yes. Right? Um, but yeah, I'm curious if that is consistent with your view of your muse or does that feel different? It's, I'm thinking about it. Certainly mine has a lot of combined elements from things I read. I'm very easily infected by the voices of, especially strong voices. You know, if I'm reading Virginia Woolf, it becomes evident in my writing, for example. Music, poetry are also strong influences often. I hadn't really thought about this explicitly, but Often when I wake up and I'm writing in the morning and I start with song lyrics, that's a sign that the muse is coming as I oh, think wow. of her. And um, <laughs> what there are times when what comes out in good writing, and I think one reason to call it a muse is not, it does feel other. It does feel like I haven't, you know, consciously put that thing together. But one reason is to not take credit for it because it it feels like other things coming through me. And so I could kind of resonate with what you were saying about feeling that 
it had combined in some way. And maybe, you know, strong inspiration is just when you lose conscious track of where exactly it came from because it may not be original at all. You're like, oh, this is really good. And you're like, yeah, that's just, you've just stolen that. You know? yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. But I, I think in the end also it doesn't matter because mm. I see cultural creation very much as a uh, societal process anyway. Mm, uh, mm, yes. So it doesn't matter if it, if it's stolen, as you call it, or if it's like, some kind of creation inside of yourself. And, yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, there was a question I was going to ask that now just disappeared. Oh, yeah. Um, do you cultivate your relationship with your muse? As in, does your muse have certain needs that you are trying to actively give her? Because that would be a very beautiful relationship to self, right? She does. And <laughs> I can feel her. <laughs> nice bring her out yeah um i don't know how much she likes being talked about right now <laughs> she's she's there all right and um yes i think there's a certain level of speaking so when i speak from a kind of flow state or a kind of inspired way where where I'm not consciously putting things together in a certain sense when you whenever you speak you don't quite know what's going to come out but there are moments where it aligns and you get on this train somehow and it comes out structured so when she gets time to do that in speech and in writing she is happy it sounds very weird to say this uh <laughs> to speak about my this other part of my brain in public as a you know but yeah, I would say that I do have an understanding of what this part of me needs. And those are not the same as my needs, I would say. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. To me. So, yeah. There are times when, yeah, we, we disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Even saying we is a little like... <laughs> Sounds insane, right? I hear you. Yeah, but I think that's a, a beautiful example of, of relating to self and how sometimes that is seemingly difficult because there are different needs to be met or there are different visions of, of what constitutes a right way of doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And I, that reminds me of this one phrase that I always try to remember and I forgot who said it as so often. Uh, something like wisdom is the acceptance of cognitive dissonance. Oh, wow. Mm -mm. And I liked that because I've been struggling with that myself a lot, as in I found myself to be desiring coherence. Right. Right. Wanting to and, collapse. Yeah, wanting to just be clear, like in one thing. Yeah. And But that's actually just not true. Mm -mm. I am a multitude. And yes. And... Um, different perspectives, sometimes seemingly contradictory perspectives, mm -hmm. can exist in me at the same time. Mm. And I find this quote like helps me to remind myself that it's okay to have this cognitive dissonance. Yes. And maybe it's also okay to have a relationship with your muse where the desires and the needs sometimes are not the same as yours. Mm. It reminds me of the John Keats quote. It's from a letter, I think it might be to his brother. And it's about Shakespeare, whom I think he refers to as the bard, but it's just about negative capability, this ability to tolerate 
high uncertainty. He thinks this is the characteristic quality of the poet. Mm. And so being able to sustain conflicting views for long enough to get the art out is somehow, you know, and that discomfort, that dissonance that you were referring mm. to. That's beautiful. I didn't know that, but it makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. Yeah. Do you think of yourself as, in plural terms? Do you ever find yourself saying we when you mean I? <laughs> well, I, I don't, I won't like accidentally say that. Mm. Um, but I do sometimes think of my kindergarten, mm. I, I call it, because it's like yes. there's this whole bunch of children mm. with all kinds of unmet needs mm. that are sometimes more present than other, other times. But then, yeah, sometimes I refer to myself as like, you know, me and my kindergarten. And yes. Then, <laughs> uh, and I feel that's beautiful and it, it helps me also make sense of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot. It does seem like it's not just a multiplicity of selves. I mean, David Hume has this bundle view of the self, which is basically saying he's trying to find that subject that's stable, you know, relating back to the beginning of the conversation that we had. And just, you know, when we were talking about the observer and you observe the subject and the object relationship. And what he's saying is, if there is no experience, if there is no you know, sight, sounds, and all the rest that comes into this mind moment or whatever, then there is no sub, there can be no subject. So the subject is always relational to an experience. But because every experience is itself unique, it cannot be the same self that arises because the self is dependent Mm. in some way on that experience. And it's something that I've thought about in terms of is... (laughs) You know, is the me that cooks the same as the one that listens to music? Of course, you can do both at the same time to some degree. But, you know, it, or is is that sort of self-accommodation, you know? or And, you know, it must be the case that, you know, now we have recording technology. You can listen to the same song two times in a row. But, you know, it's like the Heraclitus thing. You can't step in the same river twice, right? You can't listen to the same song twice, right? Because the second time you're a different you're person, different. right? Yeah. You know? So it's just like something that I've wondered about, which is, yeah, what if each of these modes of experiencing does generate different selves? And so there are, you know... I don't know. It's, it's an open question for you. <laughs> I love that you just said, I don't know, because that was going to be like my, my final question, I guess. Mm. Um, I've noticed that for myself, one of the things that made a tremendous difference mm. is getting comfortable with, I don't know. Yes. Yes. And I'm curious in, in your perception of self and in the way you navigate the world, like what's the, the place that not knowing has in mm. your worldview? Yeah, I love that question. Sometimes I feel like I want to know too much or I'm too, you know, I don't know if I, maybe I'm a know-it-all or something like that. I do like knowing things. I spend a lot of time, you know, remembering, rehearsing, but why, you know, like, why do I need to know the dates of this or that or the other? But I, I do, I seem to have that kind of 
desire. And maybe it relates to what you were saying about this need to reduce cognitive dissonance, that kind of discomfort of the unknown. At the same time, I think that what drives my curiosity to a large degree is the enjoyment of being in that space of not knowing, coming into a new book, a new genre of music, a new relationship as a complete beginner. Mm. Beginner's mindset. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Great. Well, Brian, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your presence in your own living room. And thank you for your kindness of having me here. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> wonderful. Um, is there anything that you can share with our audience in terms of like, where can they find you? Like, do you have stuff that they can read? You have a podcast. Where can we listen to it? That kind of stuff. Yes. So I'm on Twitter. My DMs are open, so you can reach me there. I am Brian Cam. That's B-R-Y-A-N-K-A-M, which is Kilo Alpha Mike. And I am also, I have a YouTube channel, which you can find on there. I also have, yes, as you said, the podcast, that's anchor.fm forward slash B-K-A-M, Bravo Kilo Alpha Mike. I don't know why I do that, but I seem to have that. <laughs> well, in case there's doubt, I will put those in the show notes yes. so people can okay. find them in the podcast. Okay, excellent. So that's where you can find me, and I would love to hear from anyone who listens to this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Joachim. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>